a reporter was sent to Florida to do a piece on the citrus industry. He arrived, he walked into a grove and into a shed where he watched a man stand by a conveyor belt and sort oranges all day long. He'd put the large oranges in the large holes, the small oranges in the small holes, the bruised oranges in another hole. And finally, after some time, the reporter uh, said to the worker, man, how do you stand it all day just standing there sorting oranges? And the worker said, you don't know the half of it. From the time I come in until the time I leave, it's decisions, decisions, decisions. <laughs> Life is decisions. Most of them will be small. Some of them will be huge and shape our lives. And some of them, you know, will leave a bruise. Life is made up of decisions from the time we come in until the time we leave. You know, in our culture, it's full of decisions. Uh, back in 1970, almost 50 years ago, there was a landmark book written called Future Shock by Elvin Toffler, and he coined a phrase that describes the malaise of the choice culture we live in. He called it overchoice. And he did a calculation in 1970 of all the options you have when you buy a car in terms of color, accessories, make, and model. And in 1970, you had 25 million choices about a car. You walk into any Starbucks counter today, you have 80,000 choices. The challenging piece is that brain scientists tell us that at any given time, you can keep seven chunks of information in your brain, and you can only keep it there for 20 seconds. So we live in a decision culture, but we know that most of those kinds of decisions, cars and coffee, they're not ultimately going to make you know, a, a, a large mark on our life, but our life often comes down to a few really big decisions. Should I get married? Who will I marry? What will I do for work? Where should I go to school? Where should I live? How should I spend big chunks of money? Those are the decisions that shape our lives. And I've got good news. God is interested in those decisions. But even more, he's calling out to us today. Calling out to give us wisdom. Jesse's going to come and read our text. It's Proverbs 8, this great poem from the Old Testament, I would remind you that it's Jesse's voice box, but it's God's voice to you. A reading from Proverbs chapter 8. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city at the entrance, she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. 
Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. By me kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me princes govern and nobles all who rule on earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago. At the very beginning, when the world came to be, when there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor, favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All those who hate me love death. This is the word of the Lord. Our text tells us three things about wisdom. First, it tells us the value of wisdom. Wisdom is valuable. Second, it tells us the meaning of wisdom. We'll understand from the Hebrew mind what wisdom looked like. And then lastly, the text tells us the source of wisdom. Where do we find it? So the value of wisdom, the meaning of wisdom, and the source of of wisdom. The text talks about the value of wisdom, and it's interesting. Twice it says, once in verse 10, that it's better than silver 
or choice gold. And a little later in the text it says it's, it's the fruit. The fruit of wisdom is better than silver or gold. And then it goes on to say in 15 and 16 that if you have wisdom, you, kings reign. And uh, you'll, you'll make a difference on the earth. You, you'll rule on the earth. The idea is that wisdom is more valuable than fame, fortune, or power. If you have wisdom, you have more than what fame, fortune, and power can bring into your life. I think in our heads we say, yeah, but in our hearts we say, I'm not so sure. I might like to try the other, the other one, fame, fortune, and power. Well, I don't know if you've heard about it. There's been a little gossip about fame, fortune, and power of late. There's some complaints about having fame, fortune, and power. Three complaints that I know of. One is that it's tenuous, that even if you get fame, fortune, and power, and by the way, it's only a very small minority of people in this world who ever get all the fame, fortune, and power that they want. But even those who do, you may have heard this, they can't keep it. You're already losing it. Second complaint about fame, fortune, and power and why wisdom is more valuable is because the path to fame, fortune, and power is not very clear. Again, you and I both know that there are those who are at the pinnacle of fame, fortune, and power and they are not very wise. And there are also some of the wisest people we will ever know will never be famous, have fame, or hold power. The path is not clear. There's just exceptions all around as to who gets fame, fortune, and power. Often, the whole path to it seems like a Seinfeld episode. Do you remember George Costanza? He was in his late 30s. He was unemployed, broke, and living with his parents. So one day, he's at the coffee shop with his friends, and it suddenly dawns on him that the reason his life is miserable is because for all of his life, he, he has followed his natural instincts. So he decides from that moment on, he is going to do the opposite of what his natural instincts tell him. Beginning with his order, instead of tuna on white, he ordered salmon on wheat. And the whole rest of the episode, he resists his natural instinct and does the opposite. And by the end of the show, he is dating the woman of his dreams, working for the New York Yankees, and living in an apartment in Manhattan. Let us pray. <laughs> no, it's a sitcom. We wish it were that clear and easy, but it's a sitcom. Yeah, the gossip about fame, fortune, and power. It's tenuous. The path is not clear. One more thing. Have you heard this? Even that small minority of people who get all the fame, fortune, and power a person could want, they're not very happy. I have a file in my office. It's a manila folder, and on the tab is written, the whole file. H-O-L-E. It's a thick file filled with interviews and articles from rich, famous, wealthy people describing how empty it is at the top. There's, for instance, I know his name is never to be spoken around here, but there's Tom Brady. Do you remember his interview on 60 Minutes a few years ago? 
incredibly vulnerable and honest. And he says, I have achieved such success that most people only dream about. But I wake up every morning asking, is this it? I have interviews with Brad Pitt, Beyonce, Madonna. I added a, a quote to the file this week. thought I'd share it with you. It's by Jonathan Haidt who's uh, a a, a professor at New York University in the Stern School of Business. Best-selling book, The Happiness Hypothesis. It's a very interesting book, by the way. He talks about how wisdom has to come from ancient sources. Hmm. Wealth itself has only a small direct effect on happiness because it so effectively speeds up the hedonic treadmill. There's a phrase for you. As the level of wealth has doubled or tripled in the last 50 years in many industrialized nations, the levels of happiness and satisfaction with life that people report have not changed. And depression has actually become more common. Mm, Okay, you're saying, Larry, you've piqued my interest. All right? I I hear what you're saying. Wisdom might be more valuable, might be... (laughs) I'd still like to try. Might be more valuable than fame, power, or wisdom. So I'm interested enough to say, what's wisdom? What do you mean when you say wisdom might be more valuable than fame, fortune, or power? Okay, let's define wisdom. Wisdom is one of those abstract kind of words that I think needs a lot of explanation. And it's best to start with what it's not. So the first thing I would say is that wisdom is not knowledge. It's related to knowledge. You can't be wise without having knowledge, but wisdom goes beyond knowledge. I like to point out that, you know, our culture is obsessed with knowledge. Scientific, technological, we think those things could save the world. And every problem that we have in the world could be fixed if only we had more science and technology and knowledge. I would like to scratch on that for just a minute. You with me? Historians tell us that up until the year 1900, human knowledge doubled every century. By 1959, the human knowledge, that is the facts we know about life and the universe and people, and the storage capacity to hold it, by 1955, it was doubling every five years. Today, it's estimated that human knowledge in terms of what we know and how we store it doubles every 13 months. Doubles. There are scientists working with IBM to produce computers that can store the doubling of human knowledge and they predict it will double every 12 hours. You realize, right, that a high school graduate today knows more facts about the universe than Benjamin Franklin, Friedrich Hegel, or Aristotle combined. That Moses and Paul probably could not pass a college entrance exam today. But the question is, has the accumulation of all this knowledge and the capacity to store it fixed the problems of our world? That's a question. Has it at least kept up with the problem-solving ability? Hmm. 
I would suggest to you that wisdom is more than knowledge. I'd also suggest to you that wisdom is more than goodness. I think there are those who think, well, a wise person is a person who knows the rules and follows them. So if you're just basically a good person, you are a wise person. I'd like to suggest that wisdom goes farther than just being a good moral person for at least two reasons. One, you may be the most moral good person there ever is, and you can still ruin people's lives by your goodness. For instance... You might be a person who's really drawn to step in to helping poor people around the world. But if you don't really understand the complexities of poverty and the systems of how people are oppressed, you could, with your money to a poor family, actually end up ruining their lives. It's just not as simple as being a good person and open your wallet. Also, Most of the decisions that shape our lives go beyond being a moral person or a knowledgeable person. You know, again, those big decisions, should I get married, who should I marry, what should I do for work, where should I live, should I spend a lot of money on this house, all those decisions go beyond just being a good person and go beyond having all your facts in a row. Sometimes, You're choosing between good and good. And those are the hard decisions. But a bad decision on any of those things can ruin your life. Mm. All right. If wisdom is more than knowledge and wisdom is more than being a good person, Larry, what's wisdom? Well, I'd like to show you from the text. Uh, What's wisdom? And uh, it's in verses 12 through 16. Solomon, we think, uh, King Solomon, who was one of those people, by the way, who would be in my whole file, uh, got fame, fortune, and power and said, yeah, it's pretty empty up here. Um, He shares in this poem what wisdom is, and he's lathering on in his poetry uh, with synonyms. There are six synonyms for wisdom. Now, we don't have time to go through all of them. Basically, they break into what I think are the two parts or components of wisdom. The first part of wisdom is you are a person who knows how to gain knowledge. That's the first part of wisdom, gaining knowledge. And then a wise person, secondly, is a person who knows how to use knowledge. You apply it. So you you are a person who gains knowledge, and you are a person who applies knowledge. That's a wise person person. It's interesting to see this in the synonyms. He says, for instance, uh, counsel and sound judgment are mine. Counsel. That's a a word that literally means talking to other people and picking their brains. A a wise person is a person who says, "Mm, I I want more people involved in this decision, so I'm going to get a mentor, or I'm going to talk to my spiritual direction committee, my friends at church. I'm going to be a person who asks other persons for help in making decisions. That's a great way to gain knowledge. The other word uh, I, I would point out there is the word knowledge itself. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's, uh, it's pronounced yada, and it's literally a word in Hebrew that's morphed. Uh, the, the Greek word, or Hebrew word for hand is yad, and the Hebrew word for eye is uh, a. And so yada means what you see with your eyes and do with your hands. In other words, the great way to gain knowledge in life is through experience experiences 
So one of the ways we go through life and gain knowledge is to learn from our experiences. Uh, I, I, there's examples of this all around our culture. One of my favorite lists, I don't know about you, but there's certain lists I look for every year. One of them is called the Darwin Award list. Now, if, if uh, evolution happens to be your belief story, uh, this is great because, you know, the, the point of the Darwin Awards is there's still work to do, evolutionary work to do with the human race. And that's a point well taken. Uh, but one of my favorite incidents, award winners a few years ago, was a guy who was sitting around on his deck one day thinking, I wonder if lawn chairs could fly. <laughs> I've never had that thought. I, I don't know about you. But what he did is he went out and bought a bunch of weather balloons, filled them up, tied them to his lawn chair, and guess what? Lawn chairs can fly. And he got up high enough to get into some wind currents around the neighborhood, and before he knew it, he was over the airspace over Los Angeles International Airport. <laughs> Yada! <laughs> we learn from our mistakes. So wisdom is the knowledge, uh, gained knowledge through life experience and through counsel. But uh, I like the idea of how the text also tells us that wisdom is about applying the knowledge and using the knowledge. So it talks up there about um, this word, where is it, uh, uh, sound judgment, counsel and sound judgment. Sound judgment, it sounds kind of bland in English, but it's just really the idea of, in the Hebrew mind, if you are gain knowledge, but you know how to use it at the right time, it can really pay off for you. Sound judgment is knowing, you know, timing issues. You have knowledge, but it's not always just having knowledge, it's when do you use the knowledge. I also like the word it talks about, again, the idea of applying knowledge uh, for prudence. Again, I don't like that word in English. I think of doilies on Downton Abbey when I hear prudence. But in the Hebrew, it's the word crafty. So it's this idea that Sherlock Holmes and I could walk into a room together. I would look around and I'd say, what a mess. Who are these people? Sherlock Holmes would look around and say, oh, that's that long and not this long. That means a lot. And that's fresh. That or whatever that is over there, that's fresh. That tells me a lot. So Sherlock Holmes could put all the clues together from the circumstances and solve the case. And I'd be just scratching my head saying, boy, this is a messy room. You see, it's not just gaining the knowledge. It's knowing how to understand how things happen in life. So wisdom is about gaining knowledge and using knowledge. So that's why the word itself, wisdom, is the Hebrew word chokmah. And it literally means skill. It's used to describe architects and builders who build great buildings. It's used to describe artists and musicians who produce great art. They're skilled. Well, a wise person is a person who's skilled with using knowledge. Skilled with using knowledge. That is, they have competence with regard to the complex realities of life. All right. Fancy definition there. Larry, you still haven't answered my question now. Where do I get it? What's the source of wisdom? I, I'm with you so far. I believe it's about gaining knowledge. I believe it's about skill with knowledge. But where do I get it? What's the source? Okay, that's, that's a question. The, you, Bible. the Bible, right? <laughs> well said. Um, let's talk about that for a minute. The, the source of wisdom. Uh, 
we go to the Proverbs. It's interesting in verse 22, the poem takes a turn. So now it's been the value of wisdom and what it means. And now that we go to this idea of creation. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Me, wisdom. It's wisdom talking here as a person. He brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago. This idea that when God made everything that we know, wisdom was with him. Wisdom produced this. God created the world with wisdom. And for the sages of the ancient world, this was important. Where the word came, the world came from determined whether or not you were a wise person. Because if God made the world, then he made it to work a certain way. And if you work with the grain of the wood, so to speak, your life will go well with you. If you resist how God made the world, you'll struggle in life. It's like we see this rather easily in the natural world, in the laws of aerodynamics, let's say. If you want to build a plane or a flying lawn chair that does not regard the laws of aerodynamics, you'll crash. But if you respect the laws of aerodynamics, you could fly. The same holds true in the social realm of our world, and the same holds true in the spiritual realm of our world. If you work with the grain of creation, life will go well for you. So the ancients said, part of what wisdom is, is understanding a template. That there's a certain way creation works, and if you are a wise person, you seek to understand that and go with the flow of how God made the world. So when you read the Proverbs, it starts with creation. That's the foundation. But then in chapters 10 to 15, it's really interesting. By the way, I gained this insight from Tim Keller, and his, he preached a couple of sermons on the, from the Proverbs. Is it worth your listening to if you Google Tim Keller? And he talks about one of the things that the abuses of Proverbs is most people only go to them and pick a verse here and a verse there. They dip into it with a spoon kind of thing. One of the great values of the Proverbs is that there's structure to the book. And so one of the things that would be helpful for all of you to do this week is to sit down, take an hour, and read through the entire book of Proverbs. You'll gain from it. So Keller points out that the first nine chapters are the foundation of all wisdom. They're about God the creator and wisdom calling out to us. Look how I made the world. Look how I made the world and get in line with that and things will go well with you. Then chapters 10 to 15 is that pattern. This is how God made the world. So it has things, you know, these are what we know about the Proverbs, that if you work hard, you'll prosper. But if you're lazy, you're going to beg. We like that. It makes sense. If you uh, obey God's moral absolutes and the way he made the world, then life will go well with you. Or some of the more infamous ones, if you raise a child in the way she should go, when she is older, she'll respect you and love you and be a responsible adult. All of those we like, right? We like. That's a box and everything fits well. The conservatives in the room are saying, yeah, I knew it. There's a box. And if everyone would just live in the box, this world would be fixed. Conservatives are saying, Amen. If only we could stop at chapter 15. You have to read through the rest of the book, and what happens in chapter 16 is the text starts to get peppered a little bit with exceptions. Now, not exceptions to moral absolutes. It's never right to commit adultery. 
It's never right to lie. It's never right to steal. But there are exceptions in terms of outcome. You may obey all those things, and things may not turn out well for you in spite of your obedience. So, for instance, there's Proverbs in the latter parts that talk about a person who works hard, but because they live under an oppressive system, they're still poor. It talks about a person who obeys God's moral absolutes and works with the grain of creation, but they still end up with a lousy life. There are those Proverbs that talk about good parents who raise a child and the child rebels. (laughs) Some of my favorite ones are rather funny. There's this verse in the Proverbs that says, He that finds a wife finds a good thing. I thought I'd get some amens from the men in the room. You just blew that one. A few verses later, it is better to live on the corner of a roof than with a quarrelsome wife. Oh, there we get the amens. Thanks. Some of you are going to be hungry this afternoon. Then there's this two two Proverbs back-to-back, Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. Verse 4 says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Verse 5, the next verse. Answer a fool in his folly. What is that? What is that? All the liberals in the room are saying, yeah, I knew it. Life is messy. You have to make it up as you go. There's no template. It's messy. We do the best we can in the moment. Some of you are really wondering where this is going to land. (laughs) I am too. Uh, (laughs) What's wisdom? What's wisdom? I would put it this way. If you don't believe there's a template, a creator with a pattern in life, you're a fool. But if you believe you know the extent of the template and how it will play out in every life, you're a fool. In fact, I think, considering our environment, I'd like to illustrate a conservative fool. You've probably heard of it. It's the story of Job. Do you remember Job? He was the most righteous man of his day. In fact, God put him on a spiritual baseball card and showed it to the heavenly realm and the demonic realm and said, have you seen this guy play? He's the best, the best there is. And the devil, the opposing manager said, yeah, but you're paying him. You're George Steinbrenner. You're just giving him everything he wants. Pull it back a little bit, his wealth, his health, his family. Pull it back, he'll curse you. Well, you know the story. It's exactly what happened. God allowed everything to be taken from Job. Everything. Everything. To the rescue comes Job's three friends, the conservative fools. These were men who lived in Proverbs chapter 10 through 15. Everything in a box. 
And so they looked at Job's life because what they believed that is if you obey God, your life will be good. They looked at Job's life and it was not so good. So what's the problem? The problem is, Job, you're a sinner. You're sinning. You must be disobeying God. They were miserable friends. Absolutely miserable friends. Do you know why? Because they only had one end of the pattern stick and they were beating Job down with it. Beating him down. Worst kinds of friends imaginable. Beating people up with a box. Okay. Where's wisdom? Where's wisdom? Back to the poem. The most incredible feature of the poem is what's called personification. Wisdom becomes not an abstract concept, but a person, an I, me, and a my. And throughout the poem, it calls out to us as a person. This is important. This is where I'm going. The wisdom of God is not a box or a manual. The wisdom of God is a person. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the beginning of wisdom. And if you have that relationship, you have wisdom. Now it talks in the poem about uh, the creation. What's interesting, the Christian creation account is different than any other cre uh, creation myth around the world. Most other creation myths, and I don't care if you're talking about the Sumerian, the Babylonian, the Greek, the Roman, the Old Norse, the Old German, whatever creation story you might believe, all of those stories have to do with gods fighting each other out and the ones that are standing in the end win. The creation account is so, so different. The crea Christian creation account, as we read, as Jesse read earlier, it ends with God frolicking with all that he's made. Delight, joy. You see, in the creation account, all of creation comes from this explosion of love that we know as the Trinity. The Father loving the Son. The Spirit loving the Son and the Father. Preferring each other. Delighting in each other. Affirming the other. Christian creation is about love. Love, love, love is the basis of reality. It's about how the Trinity, the first family, loves each other. And out of that explosion of love, he made us. And he made all that is. The point is this. Deep wisdom means that in all psychological reality and all social reality, all of it needs, we need to know and resemble and embody the life of the Trinity. And when that's the basis of our reality, we become people of love. Love received and love given. And that is essential wisdom. That's how the world works. So, let me wrap this up with a couple of practical applications. To be people of wisdom means that we need to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. I just want to first mention how staggering that would be in Jesus' day. Most people in Jesus' day, much like our day, were thinking that wisdom was a manual you read. Wisdom means, you know, buying books from the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. Wisdom is just getting the facts, getting the goods, 
and, and then making decisions and moving on in life. The Christian view of wisdom is it's not a manual, it's not a book, it's a person. It's being in relationship with a person. So in Jesus' day, they were saying the same thing. There was a, a famous um, person who would have done a TED Talk in Jerusalem back in the day. His name was Ben Sirach. And here's what he suggested to get wise. Come to her, wisdom, like one who plows and sows. Put your neck into her collar. Bend your shoulders and carry her. Come unto her with all your soul and keep her ways with you with all your might. For at last you will find rest, she gives. Then her fetters will become for you a strong defense and her collar a glorious robe. Her yoke is a golden ornament. So there you see Ben Sirach saying, yeah, find wisdom, get wisdom, but it's in the books you read, it's in the people you talk to. Can you imagine how stunning it was when Jesus came on the scene and said this, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, when God wanted to prove his existence, he doesn't just give us airtight arguments. There's no airtight arguments for anything. What God does is give us an airtight person, a beautiful, stunning person that if we engage in relationship with him, helps us walk through life well, even when decisions we make turn out wrong. It's being yoked with Jesus. So the question is, how do we have that yoke with him? I'd like to suggest, I said I want to get practical, two spiritual disciplines you might want to try. Because if you're in a decision-making mode in your life, the most important thing for you to do is be connected with Jesus. To make sure that he's walking with you before and he will be walking with you after. But you need to be connected. So you need to be yoked. So how do you be yoked? I would suggest trying fasting. Have you heard of that? Fasting. Fasting is, at its most simple definition, skipping a meal. I mean, people fast other things, chocolate, jelly beans, you know, other TV, phone, uh, other things. But it, fasting is about putting something in your life down in order to create more space for Jesus to be yoked with you. And it brings an intensity to your decision-making process. So, uh, by the way, if you are going to try fasting from food, you should never fast more than one day without talking to your doctor because it has physical repercussions. But I, I often just do a meal when I'm in a decision mode, when I need wisdom. What's amazing is that, you know, you skip a meal, your stomach starts growling, and you think, oh, Jesus, there you are. He, like, wedges into your life more and more intense. Fasting brings an intensity that we don't normally have. It's creating space for Jesus to show up. And when your stomach's growling all afternoon, you're praying. You're praying. And Jesus sees the intensity. Yeah. Another spiritual discipline, I would call it practicing the presence of God. But there's a number of ways to do that. One that I've shared with you before that I still can't quite get over is called The Game of Minutes by Frank Laubach. He was a missionary in the Philippines in the 60s. And for one year he tried this, that every minute he was awake, he would once during that minute say the name of Jesus. Actually move his lips and say it. Every minute 
once a minute. Can you imagine? He said, you know, mixed results, new habits formed. But, you know, I don't think he, he said he never got through a whole day where he's able to do that. But he said at the end of it all, before or since that time, he's never had more intensity in the relationship than he did that year. So how can you play the game of minutes? How can you make more room in your life for the presence of God? Because if we are going to be people of wisdom, it's not about manuals and books. It is about relationship with Jesus Christ. How will you get him in your life? How will you yoke with him? Let me close us with prayer. And then uh, we're going to sing a song where we uh, invite Jesus in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're saying that we want to be people of wisdom, and so we're saying we want you. The wisdom of God is a person. The skill of wisdom is relationship with you. So Father, I'm sure there's some here in this room who are not yoked because they feel shame and guilt from bad decisions they've made. I've made. I pray that right now they'd be able to lay those burdens down, that you'd speak to them by your spirit and say, the only one holding on to your sins is you. I've forgotten them. They are no more in my presence. Some of you need to lay your burdens down, your sins down. Let Jesus wash them away. You are forgiven. By the cross, you're forgiven. Get back in that yoke with Jesus. Some of us walked in with that sinking feeling in our gut this morning about this decision we need to make this week or in a few months. It's a life-changing big decision. And we're wondering, well, how are we going to make it? I'm guessing you've worked on the knowledge side. I'm guessing it's not a decision about right or wrong. It's just two good choices. What should I do? I want to remind you that the most important thing is to bring Jesus into it. Let him live with you going in, and he will be with you going out. Get in yoke with him. The wisdom of God is a person, and his name is Jesus. Whatever the decision is, he will live with you through it.